BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be taking a step back from the daily political headlines to talk about Bernie's big picture, where Bernie Sanders fits not just in this week's primary election voting, but the longer-term changes sweeping through America. Richard Parker of The Nation will comment. Also, the real politics of hope. Rebecca Solnit will talk about Untold Histories and Wild Possibilities. Her new book is Hope in the Dark. Barack Obama's presidency comes to an end in about nine months, and we're thinking today about how to understand him and ourselves over the last uh, eight years, our hopes, our disappointments. For that, we turn to Gary Young. Of course, he's the award-winning editor-at-large for The Guardian and columnist for The Nation, author of the book The Speech, The Story Behind Martin Luther King's Dream. He's covered American politics for 12 years We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what Obama has meant for race in America and for black Americans. In 2008, we had Yes, We Can and the Hope poster and the Will I Am video. We had those tens of thousands of people who came out to see and hear him at those huge rallies uh, on the campaign trail. It was all... It was also intense and powerful and moving. We knew something big was happening in America. Yes, symbolically, it was it was enormous. And if you were on the campaign trail in places like you know South Carolina, you know the uh, the place where the Civil War started, last place to to fly the flag, you couldn't not feel it. But it never really related to anything substantial, I don't think. I think that um, Obama didn't, unlike Jesse Jackson, for example, Obama didn't offer a program or uh, anything that would radically uh, improve the lot of African Americans in particular. He was at pains, actually, in all sorts of ways, not to stand or be understood as a black candidate. I used to jokingly refer to him as the incognito because <laughs> it was the most obvious thing about him, and yet he would um, 
he would leverage its meaning without ever including it in his message. You know, he comes out in Iowa and he says, they said, they said this day would never come. Oh. And he doesn't, you know, everybody knows what day he's talking about, <laughs> yes. but he never quite mentions it when he addresses the, the convention in Denver. Uh, where he gets a nomination, he, he refers to King as the old preacher. Was people are usually clamoring to mention King by name, and so he 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 kind of parlayed very skillfully his racial identity um, without actually offering anything concrete in return. And you know, paradoxically. He was standing, because he stood as the economic crisis grew and intensified and then finally exploded. His rise actually coincided with a massive decline in the fortunes of African-Americans. I mean, far from his rise symbolizing African-Americans doing better, it actually occurred at the moment where the gap between black and white was growing. I want to go back to the campaign in and his election night for a minute and just contemplate to recall what that meant for black america you're you're a brit but uh is it am I right that your wife and your in laws are from chicago yes and and they're african american and so you you saw the Obama phenomenon from the inside on his home turf in a way. The rest of us didn't. What did Obama mean to black Chicago when he was running and and at at Grant Park on election night? The fact that I think it was symbolic shouldn't detract from what an enormous and important symbol it was. Yeah. (laughs) So I was reporting from a place called the President's Lounge on the south side of Chicago at the time. And it was, um, nobody believed it until it actually happened. There was a kind of thing of, of, of bated breath, a sense of disbelief, and a real, see, I wouldn't say a sense of ownership in a way, because Obama, he was a black man who lived in Chicago, but, but he wasn't a black Chicagoan. You yeah. know? And he, interestingly, and I, re, I remember, uh, I can't remember who wrote this. Um, somebody said, you know, he came in through the back door, which is probably the only door open, hmm. meaning that as a black American, but not an African-American, he had an immigrant story in his past and was mixed race, as opposed to Michelle Obama or Jesse Jackson yeah. or you know, any... And that mattered. I mean, it mattered in the degree to which there could be ownership and also in his ability to talk about things you know he said he said um, in boston at the convention where he really shot to prominence when he introduced john Kerry, he said my father came to america a magical place huh. well his dad came to america and like from kenya in 1959 now it may have been a magical place for him coming from kenya but for african-americans it was not a magical place <laughs> you know at that time because large numbers of them couldn't vote so Honestly, there wasn't a sense of ownership, but there was a deep sense of pride and of of accomplishment by proxy. To be fair, I didn't meet any African Americans who thought, now my life is going to be so much better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I didn't see anybody who thought that. Never did, never have. But there was a sense that our boy, 
our black boy did it. He got there. He beat them. It's possible. Uh, and so it was a, there was a sense of elation, of jubilation, of, of pride by proxy. It wasn't a kind of black power moment. It was a, our boy done good. You say that during the eight years of his presidency, race has been absent from his message. There was, of course, that Trayvon Martin moment. After Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida for doing nothing, Obama said, quote, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, close quote. That's right. So there have been, there have been moments. As often as not, they were botched. So I don't know if you remember the, the, the moment when... Um uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Oh, yeah. um, is arrested trying to get into his house. And that ends with a with a beer summit between him and the policeman and Henry Louis Gates Jr. Quite conspicuously intervening in the case of Henry Louis Gates Jr. when he had said nothing about the case of Troy Davis. Yeah. Because paradoxically, while people argued this signals the beginning of a post-racial America, Actually, racial consciousness and racialized consciousness has actually been heightened under Obama's tenure. And so, yes, you get a moment like Trayvon Martin, and he says, you know, Trayvon Martin could have been my son. But that would, that would to me, be a perfect example of the symbolic nature of his presidency. I mean, he'd, you're right there. It's in his message, uh, which is noticeable given how many black kids have been shot, that we can remember the times when he said things like that. Yeah. But that what he can't do as president is really shift the dial in a way that's going to make it less likely that your kid gets shot. And uh, from the beginning, it's been pretty clear that, that a part of white America hated Obama because he was black and, and for what his election said about their world and the way it was changing. And that never got any better over the last eight years, did it? No, it didn't. It actually, in many ways, it got worse. And I, I've always thought that it wasn't just that he was black. If one looks at Dr. Ben Carson or Herman Cain, there is a certain kind of black American that Republicans feel comfortable with. But that for Obama, it was so much, I think, so much more than his blackness. He was the child of an immigrant at a time when they were anxious about immigration and foreign trade. Nobody would have asked for Jesse Jackson's birth certificate. That was not what the problem was there. The fact that his father was a non-practicing Muslim at a time when there were these wars uh, and issues of terrorism and the wars weren't going well and the threat of attack, no one would have doubted, no one doubts, that Jesse Jackson is a Christian. Yeah. The fact that he was mixed race, actually, that he was a product of uh, a miscegenated relationship, that this is, you know, one of the central fears of, you know, historical fears of the, um, of white supremacy is the kind of defiling of the um, white womanhood. And so in all, in a range of ways, he represented the kind of globalized citizen 
the, this product of a kind of um, an international cosmopolitan world, um, which a section of white America found in different ways that world very scary in terms of trade and yeah. China and and uh, war and terror and uh, demographics. And he kind of embodied all these fears. And damn it, wasn't he kind of good-looking and charming too? <laughs> and so in all sorts of ways, he... Uh, was emblematic of a future that they were terrified of. I think that explained the intensity of their loathing. I think if you look at how the right responded to Bill Clinton uh, in an era without Facebook and Twitter and the ability to be hyper-caffeinated in your kind of, um, in your messaging, they also are just people who hate Democrats. Yeah. They hate Democrats <laughs> and they hate liberals. You know, Tony Morrison has said, you know, they're treating him as though he's black with uh, Bill Clinton. And then you get a real black person and you just see the intensity kind of go up a notch. And you're right, it didn't get any better. Although for those who, for the significant section of white America who voted for him and supported him or at least weren't freaked out by him, uh, one's got to say, did represent a new normal. And I think that that element for whom he was an emblem of fear was both smoked out and, uh, and seemed to be relatively marginal. Gary Young, read him at The Nation and The Guardian. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now we want to take a step back from the daily media deluge of political news to look at the bigger picture of American politics. We want to understand, among other things, where the Bernie Sanders campaign fits into the longer-term period of change that, that has begun. And for that, we turn to Richard Parker. He's a member of The Nation magazine's editorial board. He's also a founder of Mother Jones magazine. He's an Oxford-trained economist who teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's the author of many books, including the biography of John Kenneth Galbraith. He's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Harper's, as well as The Nation. Richard Parker, welcome. It's very nice to be with you today. How are you? Good. Well, you've been thinking about the big picture, the long-term battle between left and right in, in our history. I guess the long-term goes back to the New Deal and, and FDR in the 1930s, which really transformed American politics. I'd even push it further back. Let me push it back to 1860 and the election of Abraham Lincoln, and then have your uh, listeners think about the following. In the period from 1860, uh, when Abraham Lincoln became the first man elected as a Republican and the modern two-party system began, to 1932, when Roosevelt was elected, was almost 75 years. And in that period, there were only two Democrats elected to the White House. And then Roosevelt comes into office in 32, and then from then until 1980, only two Republicans are elected to uh, the White House. And then from then forward to today, again, two Democrats elected uh, to the White House. I, I mention this because I, I, I point to Stephen Skowronek, a Yale uh, political philosopher, who has written on long political cycles. And his point is that we need to understand that there are a very small number of presidents among the nearly four dozen that we've had who set in motion much longer political 
ideological, uh, party structural uh, periods. And that in the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 and Ronald Reagan in 1980 are the two defining figures. So you can talk about the 32 to 80 period as the Roosevelt period. You can talk about the, the uh, 80 to present uh, period uh, as uh, the long Reagan era. But each of those comes to an end. And one of the things that Scour Next notes is that they come to an end usually in a decade in which uh, America is involved in a war that doesn't go well or uh, is involved in a financial crash. And it, the fact of the matter is we've had both in the last few years. And you can see that already ideologies are shifting. This is not the Hillary Clinton who ran in 2008. Uh, if anybody had said to you or me, that uh, someone calling himself a democratic socialist would run for president and make a credible, in fact, powerful run at the office, I think we would have scoffed. When you look at the way in which young people have been turning out to vote for Bernie, uh, you would have said, uh, oh, no, you can't ask a man in his 70s to be a rock star for uh, the millennial generation, and yet that's what he's become. I, I say all this because I, I, I lose patience with a lot of the day-to-day, night-to-night coverage that you see on television or you pick up in social media with its worries about this uh, uh, campaign or that donor or whatever. And I want to stand back and ask your readers to stand back and think instead that what we're going through right now is a decade not unlike the 70s, uh, where you have uh, the troublesome residue of uh, war. You have... Uh, financial uh, uh, wild fluctuations. We had stagflation in the 1970s and the two great oil price hikes in the 1970s. And we've had the big financial meltdown in uh, the most recent period. And what these do is stamp um, uh, the end of uh, of one of these long cycles and provide the room for uh, new ideas to come to the fore. And Bernie Sanders is a critical critical part of that whole process. He's not the fulcrum. He's not the sole pivot on which this uh, period shifts. But we need to see just how important it is for that kind of candidacy to open up the possibilities uh, of a new uh, a new era. In this kind of perspective, Clinton is part of the age of Reagan, much as he didn't want to be. And that explains a lot of our unhappiness with with Bill Clinton's record, with the deregulation of banking, with NAFTA, with mass incarceration. And, and, you know, Hillary's supporters talk about, praise her for her experience, but really her most indelible experiences, her most searing experiences were the defeats she and Bill suffered as the age of Reagan continued. I I think that's exactly right. Bill Clinton and I were at Oxford at the same time. And so, Bill, uh, 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 um, Ira Magaziner, Bob Reich, uh, 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 a number of uh, people uh, all come from exactly that same period. And so many of my my generation, our generation, is stamped by that sense of having grown up in the long Roosevelt period, but having come to adulthood watching the Roosevelt period crumble before uh, our eyes to be replaced by this long Reagan period and how much of our adult life has been lived under this long Reagan cycle. And so, yes, absolutely, Hillary, Hillary comes to mature political consciousness um, as part of the long Reagan cycle. And again, sort of think about these presidents. Wilson and uh, Cleveland were the two presidents in the long Lincoln cycle. Both of them were pretty conservative, uh, all things considered. Uh, the two 
uh, Republican presidents you had in the Roosevelt cycle were Eisenhower and Nixon, and neither one of them would have carried out the attacks on social welfare of the kinds that are just run-of-the-mill today, not only for Republicans, but for lots of Democrats, including Bill Clinton's welfare reform. So even when you have a president elected from the opposition party to whoever that that uh, long long cycle president is even the opposition party presidents to a degree have to operate within the ideological frame that has been established bernie says things like we need a trillion dollar program to rebuild roads and bridges and water systems and hillary says well really we need about a quarter of that and bernie says we want a minimum wage of $15 and hillary says well really $12 is is uh, realistic she always seems to have a, quote, realistic alternative to Bernie's big thinking, and her supporters, the older people who lived through the age of Reagan, say, well, she's right. You have to make these calculations. You have to make these compromises with, uh, with quote, reality. And the, the young people who support Bernie don't support Hillary because they don't understand where, where is this sense of, 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 quote, realistic compromise coming from. Right, and, and and compromising with a world that seems to be failing around them all the time. So yeah, why compromise with failure? Um, because it, it, moreover, they've been led to believe that it's a failure that is intergenerational. That that we are passing on massive debt and and uh, bankrupt social security and uh, the inability to raise middle class wages onto them. And so, why would they think that the world that we're passing on to them is one that they would want to compromise with in order to be realistic. I, I understand that completely. I, I'm not trying to take a position on, on Bernie's right and Hillary's wrong in this moment. I'm trying to argue that Bernie is a critical figure in terms of opening up the politics for a new cycle to begin. Whether that president turns out to be the one elected in 2020 or 2024, I don't know, but it's going to happen. I'm interested in where Obama fits into your analysis. He he was elected in a moment of economic crisis, in a failing war. We all said back in 2008 and 2009, Obama could be the new FDR. He could bring the age of Reagan to an end. We've all been disappointed with Obama. Where Where do you see Obama fitting into this big picture? Well, ironically, Obama is a captive of the, the long Reagan cycle. And by that, I mean, you have to understand that uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln enters office and the South secedes, leaving the Republican Party in control of Congress. Um, uh, uh, FDR wins in 32 and comes in with a Congress that is basically three-quarters controlled by the Democrats. Reagan comes into office and, and has, while well, he has to work with the, the, the House, uh, the Democratic House for a while, comes in with such momentum that he's able to gain effective functioning control uh, of, the, of, of the Congress. And, and that's in a period when a lot of the conservative Democrats were more than willing to vote with Reagan, so that it wasn't a question of having to absolutely have all of them be Republicans. Obama has come in, came in in a period where he wasn't able to bring the Congress with him. And, in fact, he was uh, uh, absolutely devastated in that first midterm election where it was one of the biggest givebacks give by a sitting president of seats in Congress in, in American history. It was just a, a bloodbath. And then the other off-cycle uh, election has been the same. So we've, we've had this process by which Obama was not able to build on his transformative capacities 
uh, and so has left the job effectively to someone else. He's John the Baptist, if you will, to a, to a new cycle that has not yet been named. So now we have the astounding success of Bernie. Never before has a Democratic Socialist gotten, what is it now, more than three million votes for president in primary elections. The primaries aren't over. He's going to get a lot more votes over the next uh, few weeks. Never before has a Democratic Socialist running for president won Democratic Party primaries or caucuses in nine states, and he's right. going to win some more. And uh, when Debs ran for president, he got arrested. So just the <laughs> fact that Bernie's not in jail is impressive. <laughs> so, so if Bernie doesn't get the nomination, which the odds makers tell us is very likely, does that mean we are still stuck in the age of Reagan if Hillary becomes our president? I think that it means that the transition period could be uh, run out a, a bit longer. I think that's that's the message. Now, again, note that I'm placing emphasis on the Congress that a president uh, has to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and that would be my message, which is, I think that if Donald Trump or Ted Cruz is the nominee, uh, uh, the, Democra uh, the Democratic nominee for president is going to have significant coattails, at least in the Senate. And that's that by itself is vitally important. And if it isn't Bernie, if it's, if it's uh, Hillary Clinton and she wins the White House, uh, uh, his ability to return to the Senate and to make, uh, uh, make common cause with, with Elizabeth Warren, my, uh, my, Senate, my state senator, um, uh, is enormous at that point. And the two of them together could create an extraordinary uh, uh, democratic progressive machine that in some sense would have the driving force that the Tea Party has had or that the Christian right has had that has not been generated on the, uh, on the left side of the political spectrum for years and years and years. Um, Bernie has proved that there are millions of people out there willing to give hundreds of millions of dollars for the values he represents. Uh, he will still be an extraordinarily popular speaker. Uh, Senator Warren, for her own reasons, has decided not to challenge uh, Se uh, Secretary Clinton or Senator Sanders, but instead to concentrate her efforts on raising money around the country to elect a Democratic Senate. So she's headed in the direction of being owed a lot of favors by her fellow Democrats uh, after, uh, after this November election. And so with him coming back to the Senate, with her there, and I can think of three or four other members of the Senate, there could be a really powerful combination that could reach not only into the Senate to provide for more progressive legislation and therefore the beginning of an authentic new era uh, than than we've uh, than we than we're cognizant of right now. Yeah. We tend to think in these simple linear steps we get from here to the nomination to the election and then whatever happens happens. But that is the way politics operates. It's a constant constant motion forward and. The minute we finish electing whoever we're going to elect as president, then we're going to have to focus on how do we get control of the House uh, and hopefully how do we build our majority in the Senate because this is, uh, this is a ground game. This is not a, this is not a, a bunch of Hail Mary passes. Richard Parker of The Nation magazine. Richard, I hope we can come back and talk to you about this again in a couple of months, and thanks for talking with us today. Not at all, John. Really good to talk with you. Rebecca Solnit is a writer, historian, and activist. She's written something like 18 books about popular power, 
uprisings, art, environment, place, pleasure, and politics. They include Men Explain Things to Me, the definitive work on mansplaining. She writes for The Guardian. She's a contributing editor to Harper's, and we spoke with her recently about her piece for The New Yorker about hiking in Nepal to see the effects of climate change on the Himalayas and the people who live there. Today, we want to talk about the new edition of one of my favorites of her books, Hope in the Dark, Untold History's Wild Possibilities. We reached her in San Francisco. Rebecca Solnit, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, when you first wrote about hope, it was 2003 and 2004, some of our darkest political moments. We were at war in Iraq. George Bush, who never should have become president in the first place, was reelected fair and square. And today, in contrast, we have many victories. We have Obamacare. We have gay marriage. We, we have Bernie. But yet we still have a lot to feel bad about, especially climate change, global warming. It's hard to be hopeful there. Then there's the evil Donald Trump. So I think we still need hope. And I wonder, what does hope mean today? As I continue to watch activism achieve some victories and new troubles emerge, and I almost feel like the word is uncertainty. There's a terrible certainty to both the optimists and pessimists who think they know what's going to happen next, or that the status quo is unshakable, which a lot of Americans assert, which is crazy if you've paid attention to anything for more than 20, 20 minutes. So, you know, uncertainty just means knowing that we don't know what's going to happen, and maybe hope means and that maybe there's some possibility we can intervene and help shape the outcome. And the historical record bears out that, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, progressive activism has changed the world again and again. Well, that's we can certainly point to, to gay marriage and to Bernie as as powerful examples of, of, of that. But then on the other hand, there is climate change. Climate change, we have science. Science... When you read the science, it's hard to be, it's hard to find hope. It's hard even to find much uncertainty. And of course, climate change is, is the biggest thing that's happening to us. Where do you, how do you reconcile the apparent hopeless situation that the climate movement faces? You know, there's a bunch of answers to that. And that's the biggest of all questions since it's the biggest of all troubles uh, the planet has ever faced and our species has ever faced. I would say, first of all, it's not hopeless. You know, the way analogy I use is it's like you have a terrible disease. There are radical measures you can take that might result in your survival uh, versus just saying like, oh, I'll just let the brain tumor gallop forward. So there's, you know, hope is not saying like, oh, wouldn't it be beautiful if climate change had never happened? Climate change, hope is saying... If we struggle and organize and connect and have a vision and generosity of spirit and dedication, then we can go for the least worst case scenario, the best case scenario, which limits temperature rises, etc. And there's tremendous uncertainty. And things are happening now that the scientists did not predict, you know, the warmest month on record and the sort of speeding up of the melting of the Arctic, which is the scientists kept 
keep bringing us more and more bad news. That's about all they do, poor things. (laughs) But the amazing thing, that there's two other pieces to that puzzle that don't get talked about that much because most people don't have even the long-term vision of 10 or 15 years. The engineering is radically different than it was when I wrote Hope in the Dark. We've had an engineering revolution and an economic revolution in renewables, and it's been so incremental that people haven't said that seen it as a revolution because we don't see slow things because we don't have the attention span for them mostly, which is why we need historians and long stories and big, big views. And then the other thing is there also was very little in the way of a climate movement a dozen years ago. And there were some stalwart noble people who were saying what should happen, but there wasn't enough happening at any level. And now There's an extraordinary global and national movement. Nearly every attempt to start a new oil or gas extraction project, to build a new coal plant, to ship coal uh, coal or oil by rail, et cetera, is met uh, to build a pipeline, is met with massive opposition across the U.S. and Canada with tremendous effect. And the most obvious thing that everybody knows is the Keystone uh, Pipeline which whose northern half was uh, vetoed by Obama last fall and because of six years of activist work and you know the tar sands you can kind of you can cut them off by to some extent and then the drop in gas prices is also beating them up and you know there's it's like it's it's tremendous uncertainty. Nobody foresaw that oil prices would plummet this hard. And it's really burdening uh, the oil and gas industry in some very lovely ways. <laughs> Your emphasis on, on the uncertainty of things as a justification for hope rather than despair, that makes some people on our side, furious. I've, I've seen it on your Facebook page. I think you've noticed this too. They, they ask, how can you celebrate victories when there's still so much injustice, so much suffering? Don't you know how bad things are? You know, I do know how bad things are. And I think I often know better than them. But I also, you know, There's a bunch of stuff going on with those kinds of responses. One of them comes from a puritanical point of view or perfectionist point of view. Anything that isn't perfect is terrible. And of course, you know, that most victories are imperfect, incremental, not exactly everything we dreamed of, but there's still victories. And then there's a belief that if we celebrate somehow, that's what stops people from being politically active and therefore celebrating is somehow letting down the team. In my experience, a lot of people aren't active because of defeatism, not because of premature, you know, because of premature uh, despair rather than premature celebration. So I think it actually spurs people to believe that, yeah, we can win on this pipeline and now let's take on the next pipeline. We can, we've beat up coal pretty profoundly. Now let's go after the petroleum industry. You know, we've won same-sex marriage rights. Now let's look at police reform in light of what Black Lives Matter has really brought to the fore. And then there's another crazy white middle class thing where people think being miserable is a form of solidarity. (laughs) And I'm pretty confident that like farm workers in Florida, you know, starving people in in faraway places, etc. aren't saying like somebody sitting on their couch picking at their, their quiche 
feeling really bitter. That helps me so much. (laughs) You know, that's not really a great form of solidarity. Uh, The the forms of solidarity that count are active engagement. And the desperate are often pretty hopeful because the alternative isn't to be bitter on their sofa while watching the complete Breaking Bad. The alternative is to, you know, abandon themselves to uh, torture or their children to starvation or, you know, accept tremendous injustice. And you see a great deal of spiritedness on the part of people fighting dams in Honduras, fighting, you know, female genital mutilation in Africa, fighting, uh, you know, these huge overwhelming things. And then you look at the long-term trajectories and you realize that, yeah, sometimes we win. Uh, yesterday I was I was feeling particularly uh, preoccupied with uh, with Trump not not so much Trump himself but the the millions of people who voted for him who have a pretty good idea about he what he wants to do and I was feeling um, sort of gloomy and hopeless about that but then and I was reading your book preparing for this segment at the same time and I took a break to yeah, eat lunch and read the paper. And the paper had an article that said the following, a good villain is a terrible thing to waste in Latino politics, said Antonio Gonzalez, president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, one of several groups aiming to register three million new Latino voters across the nation by November. They believe Trump will help make Arizona a swing state instead of a Republican one this November and eventually a Democratic state, close quote. And I thought, you know, I think this is sort of what Rebecca is talking about. Here's a guy. He's got a vision. I feel better already. (laughs) Oh, man, send me that story. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, and we've been watching the Republican Party commit demographic suicide for the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, in a funny way with the thrilling death of Antonin Scalia, which has already brought so many remarkably positive things to the fore, the the death of Nancy Reagan and the Trump campaign, it sometimes feels like, are we seeing, is this going to go down in history as the spring that the Republicans were buried? And the fact that they themselves are freaked out is really interesting. And that doesn't mean that I don't take Trump seriously in the way he's licensing hate and sort of vileness and violence and all the things demagogues unleash. I am actually kind of hopeful that he's helping to kill off the Republican Party. And I also think he's terrifying because we don't, it's not like we can sit back and say like, oh, they'll just gently expire while we twiddle away and, you know, have exciting left-wing infighting, everybody's favorite pastime, especially in election years. I do think, though, that he's a, a freaky opportunity. My last point, your, your kind of hope I want to emphasize is what you call wild. It's it's about beautiful alternatives and amazing people and big dreams and high ideals and deep emotions in a sense that everything can change suddenly. This is a very special kind of hope. Yeah, you know, but the record bears it out. And Howard Zinn talked about this very much. And even before we saw the collapse of the Soviet bloc and then the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, And I remember that amazing moment, you know, what is it now, 25 years ago, and how there's all these kind of arrogant proclamations that communism is dead, capitalism won, and now we're in this amazing moment, and Sanders 
popularity really represents is people are saying capitalism is brutal, we're not for it, we hate the banks, we don't trust the corporations, we don't, you know, uh, we're not freaked out by a guy who calls himself a socialist. It's, you know, things are really interesting. And the more you take the long perspective and pay attention to the details, the more interesting they are, the more clear the uncertainties and possibilities are. And that's kind of what fuels hope, I think. Rebecca Solnit, her book, Hope in the Dark, is out now in a new edition with a new foreword and afterward. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. And now we have an engagement editor. It's the wonderful Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.